Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I have three parts for you on today's episode. In part one, I'll review our win over Sampdoria on Sunday. In part 2, I'll get you caught up on all the latest news around Napoli. And in part 3, I'll preview our Coppa Italia match on Thursday. So let's start with the win over Sampdoria. We won 1-0 on an acrobatic goal by Andrea Petagna. That was his second goal of the season and both goals he scored this season were game-winning goals. Both goals also happened to come against teams from the same city. His first goal was against Genoa on match day 2. That win ended a run of three consecutive losses at the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. Those were the losses to Atalanta, Emboli, and Spezia. This was Lorenzo Insigne's first match at the Maradona after Toronto FC officially announced his signing. Unfortunately, he only played about a quarter of the match before coming off due to injury. Despite having a limited squad, we did manage the loss while Spalletti, who was back on the touchline after testing negative, on the day of the match, moved Elmas to the left wing and brought Politano on to play on the right wing. Elmas looked much more comfortable and confident on that side of the pitch. It also helped that Napoli controlled the run of play pretty much from start to finish. That was largely due to the play of Stanislav Lobotka and Diego Deme, who had yet another strong performance. Meanwhile, David Ospina picked up his 10th clean sheet of the season. It might have been the easiest one all season. Sampdoria had only one shot on target. Thanks to the play of all five of our defenders, that includes Axel Twanzebe, who made his debut for Napoli. The club announced his arrival on loan from Manchester United on the same day that Toronto FC announced the signing of Vincinia. Maybe that was a coincidence, or maybe that was De Laurentiis just being De Laurentiis. 
We'll cover all of that in this review and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's take a look at the starting lineups. Sampdoria lined up in their usual 4-4-2 formation, but they had to use a makeshift back four with so many players missing. Julian Chabot and Alex Ferrari started at center back. Tommaso Algello returned from COVID to start at left back and Radu Dragusin, who's normally a center back, played at right back. Albin Ekdal and Christopher Askildsen started in the center of the midfield. Morten Thorsby started on the left side of the midfield and Ricardo Cervo started on the right. Finally, Diversa started two ex-Napoli players up top in Fabio Quagliarella and Manolo Gabbiadini. The two of them have scored 36 goals combined for Napoli. Quagliarella scored 11 goals in his one season for Napoli in 2009-10. He's actually been rumored to possibly return to Napoli. I love Quagliarella, he's Napoli 10, but we really do not need a 38-year-old striker. Gabbiadini scored 25 goals in all competitions in his three seasons at Napoli. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made a few changes to the squad that he fielded against Juventus and compared to our predicted 11. David Ospina started again in goal. The back four remained unchanged with Juan Jesus and Amir Rachmani at center back, Fauzi Gulam at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right back. We went with the same double pivot as well starting Diego Dem and Stanislav Lobotka there. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Elif Elmas started on the right wing over Matteo Politano. With Zielinski positive for COVID, Dries Merton started in the number 10 and Andrea Petania played at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match was that we could not have another letdown performance after a big result. We definitely achieved this goal. We were in complete control for almost the entirety of the match. I think it made a huge difference having Spalletti on the touchline after he tested negative on the morning of the match. Even though we scored only one goal, we dominated in every statistical category. We had 69% ball possession. We completed nearly triple the number of passes that Sampdoria did. We held them to just one shot on target, which was a curling effort by Qualiarella that didn't have enough power, and Ospina stopped it relatively easily. Sampdoria didn't have a single corner kick in the entire match while we had 13 and the XG score was 1.5 to 0.44 Napoli, which makes sense. We didn't create that many chances, but Sampdoria had almost no chances. Our second key to the match was that we needed to stop Manolo Gabbiadini. We recorded a clean sheet, so we achieved this goal as well. Obviously, with Sampdoria having only 30% of the ball, they found it difficult to get him involved in the match. He had only two shot attempts, and neither of them hit the target. The first was from outside the area from a nice incisive ball from Algello, but it was always rising over the bar. His second shot was in the 60th minute, and it was blocked by Juan Jesus. As a result, his streak of six consecutive matches with a goal came to an end. Our final key to the match was that we had to take advantage of Sampdoria's makeshift back line. I'm going to say we achieved this simply because the goal we scored was the result of a poor clearance by Alex Ferrari. Ferrari would not have been starting at center back if Sampdoria's regular starters Omar Kali and Maya Yoshida were available. I said in my preview that I would have liked to see us score two goals because we've conceded some pretty odd goals lately, but we had so much of the ball and defended so well that the one goal lead actually felt quite safe. Mind you, you could argue that we should have been awarded a penalty kick in the 73rd minute after Chabot got his arm up on Dries Mertens. I've seen penalties given for a lot worse than that. And what made it worse was that on the ensuing corner kick, Petania was called for a foul for almost exactly the same offense. He got his arm up in the face of Ferrari, so if one is a foul, then you would think the other is a foul as well. Either way, we achieved all of our keys to the match to secure the victory. 
All right, so there are a few more points I want to cover in this review. The first is the play of Andrea Petagna, who I thought was the man of the match. He did just about everything in this match, including scoring the only goal. So let's start with that. I mentioned the poor clearance by Ferrari, but there was still plenty of work for Petagna to do. That technique is extremely difficult to execute, but he did it really well. Audaro had no chance to stop that shot, which finished just inside the far post. Roberto Diversa said after the match that Audero was unable to make the save due to the injury he picked up, but given where the ball ended up, I don't think he would have made the save either way. Audero seemed to tweak something while taking a goal kick near the end of the half, so he was replaced by Vladimiro Falcone at the start of the second half. I thought Falcone was out due to COVID, but he must have tested negative a day or two before the match. If Petania didn't hit the target, then I suspect there might have been a VAR review for the tackle by Morten Thorsby on Dries Mertens just before the goal. Mertens played a given goal with Elmas at the edge of the area. Elmas's return pass wasn't very good, but Thorsby appeared to catch Mertens late. I'm not entirely sure the penalty would have been given though. There was a bit of contact, but I think Mertens embellished it quite a bit, so I'm glad Patania scored the goal. Patania also won the free kick that led to the Juan Jesus goal that was ultimately ruled out by the VAR. That was really too bad. Jesus has played so well filling in for Koulibaly that a goal would have been a great reward for him. It actually looked like he was trying to get back onside and that same foot that he pushed off to get onside is what actually put him in an offside position. After Jesus scored the own goal against Spezia, he said he probably couldn't do that at the other end even if he tried, so he made me eat my words even if this goal ultimately didn't stand. Shout out to Matteo Politano on this play as well. He played a quick free kick to Mertens, made the run, and played a dangerous ball into the area. Back to Patania though, I thought the partnership with Mertens worked really well in this match. Specifically, the combination of Mertens' creativity and Patania's size and strength proved very useful. With Mertens playing in the 10, he was constantly dropping between the lines to show for the ball, and the defenders were looking for that vertical pass. At times, our attack was very direct, and oftentimes Mertens would play a clever flick or backheel to Patania, and he would either hold up the ball or turn into space. We nearly scored with that exact play in the 55th minute. Rachmani played the vertical pass to Mertens, and he flicked it onto Patania before continuing his run. Patania turned and played a perfect through ball to Elmas on the left side. Elmas played the ball in front of the goal with the outside of his right boot, but the pass was a fraction of a second early, and Mertens wasn't able to hit the target with his sliding shot. As much as we like to criticize Patania for not scoring enough, which is a fact, he hasn't scored enough, I think part of the reason for his lack of production this season is a failure to use him in the right way, a failure to take advantage of his strengths. We definitely took advantage of his strengths in this match, particularly his hold-up play. Now, like I said, Patania does deserve his share of the blame for his previous performances. In order to hold the ball up, you need to have a good first touch. In previous matches, his first touch was not great, but in this match, it was very, very good. Once he controls the ball, then he can turn and run or look for the layoff. If he doesn't make a good first touch, then he's probably going to lose possession. And then of course, like with any player, as the match wore on, his confidence grew and he looked to shoot more. He nearly scored a second goal with about 10 minutes left to play, but Falcone made a fine save on Patania's curling effort. So great performance from Patania. He's a player who's faced a lot of criticism from Napoli fans. In fact, he's probably been criticized more than any other player. But in truth, the criticism hasn't been unwarranted. It's great that he played so well in this match, but we need to see that more consistently from him. Let's talk about Lorenzo Insigne next. 
first of all, I was glad to see that he wasn't jeered by the home fans. The Napoli fan base seems pretty divided on his transfer to Toronto FC. Everyone is upset to see him go, but some people are blaming Insigne while others are blaming De Laurentiis. So I wasn't sure what type of reception he would receive at this match. Now, it could have been because of the low attendance. Between the weather and COVID restrictions, just under 9,000 people were in attendance. But they did give him a warm reception while he walked off the pitch. It's too bad though because I thought he was playing really well up until that point. He looked like he was playing with the weight of the contract negotiations lifted off his shoulders. He was dribbling past players. He was getting forward and back. And all around he was having a good match. So it was unfortunate to see him come off the pitch. Now I saw some people suggesting that it was awfully coincidental that Insigne got hurt the same week that he signed for Toronto. I don't buy that. I agree with Spalletti who said after the match that he is convinced that Insigne will show the best version of himself from now to the moment of his farewell because he cares about the city and its colors. Now watching live, I thought Insigne pulled his groin judging by the way he pulled up. The early reports are that he strained his right thigh, which is actually not a terribly serious injury. We'll have to wait for the official diagnosis to be released by the club to know his recovery time. I don't think it's a coincidence though that many of our national team players are getting hurt because these guys are just playing way too many games. This round we also saw Federico Chiesa tear his ACL, Bonucci, Chiellini and Immobile have all missed time due to injury, Inter had to rest Barella for a game because he was simply exhausted. There's only so much the human body can take even if you're an elite athlete. I'm sure Toronto FC were not too happy to see their new star player go down with an injury. The team published an article with an interview with club president Bill Manning who said that Insigne will play for four seasons and potentially longer. That sounds more like a four-year contract possibly with options to extend as opposed to the five-and-a-half-year contract that has been reported recently. If that's true, then this deal went from being 11 million euros net for five-and-a-half seasons or 60 million euros net guaranteed to 8 million euros net for four seasons which is only 32 million euros net guaranteed. Now, when Insigne got hurt, Elmas moved to the left wing and Politano came off the bench to play on the right wing. I thought Elmas looked a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident playing on that left wing. That has made me wonder now if perhaps we already have Insigne's replacement in the squad and all we need to do is sign a backup left winger. We've used Elmas in numerous positions this season and we seem to get the best out of him when he plays on that left wing. My only concern with Elmas at the moment is with his decision making. He is always looking to take on the defender, which is fine. It's important to have players like that, but he seems to do it every single time he gets near the box. Sometimes the better option is to pass the ball. We saw a perfect example of that in the 81st minute. He had Petania in the area, but instead he tried to take on the defender. He pulled himself wide and shot from a tight angle and was blocked by Thorsby. That was a much lower probability shot than what Patania would have had if Elmas had passed him the ball. You could see from his reaction that Patania knew that as well. But Elmas is young, he can still learn, and with Spalletti in charge, I feel like he's going to get there. Speaking of Spalletti, I thought having him on the touchline made a big difference. You could hear him encouraging his players, instructing them where to go and who to pass to, and obviously he could adapt his substitutions based on the state of the match. Spalletti had a great Spallettiism after the match. He said, I don't care about COVID because my virus is Napoli and the Napoli players. I don't want to heal from them. One of those substitutions was Fabian Ruiz, who replaced Diego Demet in the 80th minute. That was great to see. 
even though we lost Insignia, it does seem like we're slowly getting back to a full squad. At the same time, Axel Twanzebe made his Napoli debut replacing Fauzi Gulam, so Juan Jesus moved over to left back and Twanzebe played at center back. I thought Twanzebe played well in his first appearance. In his 10 minutes plus stoppage time, he won two aerial duels and he made three accurate passes. One of those passes was another one of those direct balls to Mertens between the lines. So a solid debut from him. Speaking of debuts, Thomas Rincon made his debut for Sampdoria after joining from Torino earlier in the week. He played the entire second half and I thought he played really well. In the end, he was probably one of Sampdoria's best players. Back to our defenders, it was also great to see Fauzi Gulam play 80 minutes only 3 days after playing the full 90 minutes against Juventus. I tweeted this out but this was the first time he's played at least 80 minutes in consecutive matches since May 19th and 25th 2019. The last time he played 80 minutes in matches only 3 days apart was October 14th and 17th 2017 so that was really great to see. The last thing I want to comment on is the play of Diego Demme and Stanislav Lobotka who both made their 50th appearances for Napoli in this match. They have both really stepped up over the last few matches. They don't necessarily offer much in the attack but they have completely dominated the midfield and I've really enjoyed watching them play together. Perhaps a more accurate statement would actually be that they don't take many shots because in a way they do support the attack by pressing high and winning the ball back in the opponent's half, which they did a lot of in this match. On paper, they have positions, but in practice, they are so fluid and dynamic. They play close to each other, but if one moves forward, the other drops, and if one moves left, the other moves right. So great match all around. Hopefully, we can keep this play up and continue to get results while we're short players and put ourselves in a position to make a run when we get all those other players back. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll get caught up on the latest news. Welcome to part two of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. Next, we'll cover the latest news, starting with an update from the Africa Cup of Nations. I'm going to focus mostly on the opening match of the tournament between host nation Cameroon and Burkina Faso, because that was the only match in the first round to feature a Napoli player in Frank Zamboangisa. He's wearing the number 8 for Cameroon and playing a bit further up the pitch than he does for Napoli, to the point where he is one of the front 2 or 3 players that were pressing Burkina Faso's defenders. Cameroon were heavy favorites to win this match given they're the host nation and given the quality in their squad, but Burkina Faso actually opened the scoring from a bit of a frantic sequence from a corner kick. They had 3 chances, one of which was cleared off the line, Gustavo Sangare opened the scoring with a fantastic volley after Andre Onana misread the cross, but that was really the only dangerous spell that Burkina Faso had. Cameroon were pretty dominant in the first half and they scored the equalizer in the 40th minute from the penalty spot. In fact, it was Anguisa who won the penalty. He nipped in to get to the loose ball just before Burkina Faso's captain Bertrand Traore crashed into him. The penalty wasn't initially given but VAR looked at the play and made the correct decision. Vincent Abubakar converted the penalty to level the score. Remarkably, Cameroon were awarded a second penalty kick in the third minute of stoppage time, but that was also the correct decision. Abubakar converted that penalty with the same stop and go technique, but to the opposite side of the goal, so Cameroon went into the break ahead 2-1. Both sides had their chances in the second half. Onana made a couple of big saves in the opening 10 minutes, First on a long distance free kick from Traore that swerved at the last second, 
Then he made a ridiculous save on Adama Guida from close range on a Burkina Faso corner kick. Then just a few minutes later, Abubakar scored again for Cameroon, this time on the counterattack, but the goal was ruled out for what I thought was a very dubious offside call that would have been a hat-trick for the captain of the host nation in the opening match of the tournament, but it was ruled out by one of those micro-millimeter VAR reviews. Back to Anguissa, he came really close to scoring his first goal of the tournament in the 74th minute, but his shot took a slight deflection off the foot of Guida and finished just inches wide of the post. In the end, despite all of the chances at either end, neither team scored in the second half and the match ended 2-1 in favor of the host nation. Anguissa played the full 90 minutes and altogether, it was a very good performance from him. Meanwhile, Cape Verde beat Ethiopia 1-0 in the other match of Group A. I won't spend too much time on the Senegal-Zimbabwe match because Kaladu Koulibaly didn't play, he is currently out due to COVID. Senegal needed a stoppage time penalty kick converted by Sadio Mane to win that match. In truth though, Senegal completely dominated the match and probably should have won 4 or 5-0, but they just could not seem to find the back of the goal. Meanwhile, Guinea beat Malawi 1-0, so Guinea and Senegal are tied for top of Group B. Finally, Algeria drew Sierra Leone 0-0, but Adam Unas did not feature in that match. In fact, he wasn't even in the squad. The Algerian Football Federation decided to rest Unas due to a minor injury, but they didn't provide any details on the injury itself. It doesn't sound like it's serious though, but we'll have a better idea if he plays in Algeria's second match of the group stage on Sunday against Equatorial Guinea. Staying with the injuries, we have a few Napoli player injury updates. Victor Osman tested negative for COVID last week and has returned to Italy on the 9th. On Tuesday, he had his checkup with Professor and Surgeon Gianpaolo Tartaro and Dr. Santagata with the presence of team Dr. Raffaele Canonico. Tartaro told ilsonionelcuore.com that the test was positive and the fracture has healed. He can resume group training on Wednesday, but he doesn't know when he will see the pitch again because he hasn't played since November 21st. One thing that's for certain, he said, is that Victor will have to wear the mask until the end of March, and then he'll be re-evaluated. Santagata added that in addition to thanking his team, we need to acknowledge Victor, who acted as an exemplary professional during the post-operative phase. Obviously, Santagata hasn't spent too much time on Victor's Twitter page. On Lorenzo Insigne, through the magic of podcasting, we now have an update on his injury. On Tuesday, the club announced that instrumental tests revealed a low-grade distractive lesion of the right adductor brevis muscle. Canonico told Radio Kiss Kiss that they did an MRI, but they preferred to wait 36 to 48 hours to get a clearer picture. I'm no doctor, but a quick Google search tells me that the adductor brevis is in the upper thigh area, which explains why this looked like a groin injury. Low-grade or grade 1 strains usually have a 2-3 to three week recovery time. I'd suggest that he probably returns for the Venezia match on February 5th. I can see him starting that match on the bench and playing about 20 minutes as a substitute, so then he can start the following week against Inter. Canonico added in his interview with Kiss Kiss that Insignia has always recovered quickly from muscular strains. Fortunately, Chucky Lozano tested negative for COVID on Tuesday, so he will immediately fly back to Napoli. He'll need to undergo COVID protocols, so hopefully he will be back in training on Wednesday. In other news, according to Calcio e Finanza, the club is taking advantage of a new financial law called the DL Agosto, which allows for the revaluation of intangible assets in a company's financial statements. The objective of the law is to encourage capitalization of companies and to limit losses caused by the pandemic. Now, 
This law can only be used by clubs that prepare their financial statements in accordance with Italian accounting principles and not those like Juventus who use IFRS. What this law has allowed Napoli to do is record a book value of the Napoli brand. Prior to the law being passed, the brand had a book value of zero as at June 30th, 2020. After the revaluation, the brand value was recorded at 75 million euros as at June 30th, 2021. Now, you're probably wondering where that number came from. According to the report, Napoli used an independent third-party expert to revalue the brand according to principles of prudence, reasonableness, and provability in order to avoid the risk of overestimation and consequent unjustified increase in shareholders' equity. After putting aside 3% for tax purposes, the increase in brand value was recorded at 72.5 million euros, so how does this affect Napoli's financial statements? Last year, the club suffered losses of nearly 59 million euros. The brand revalue offsets those losses and then some. As a result, shareholders' equity increased from about 126 million euros in 2020 to about 140 million euros in 2021. We'll close the news with some transfers. On the men's side, Napoli have loaned Filippo Costa to Parma in Serie B. Parma have an option to purchase Costa at the end of the season. They've really been struggling in Serie B this season. They are currently 13th in the table. Moving on to the Femminile, there have been a number of changes to the squad during the winter break, which is about a month long for the women. On December 20th, the club announced the signing of Romina Pina. The 28-year-old was a key part of Pomigliano's promotion-winning campaign last season. She recorded 13 goals that season, as well as in the 2018-19 season playing for Chievo. She spent the first half of this season with Cesena, scoring two goals in eight appearances. The same day, the club announced the departure of Ilaria Capitanelli. She returned to Bari, who had loaned her to Napoli in the summer. The club announced two more departures on January 2nd. Madalena Porcarelli has transferred to Brescia, and Jimena Blanco, who hasn't played since match day one against Inter, has moved to five-a-side club Spartak Cesena. The following day, Napoli Femminile announced the signing of veteran midfielder Claudia Mari. She's played 10 seasons in Serie A, including six seasons with Mozanica. She's made a total of 153 appearances in the top flight, collecting 24 goals along the way, and she spent the last two and a half seasons with Milan, where she made 16 appearances. The day after that, which was the fourth, we secured the services of Lana Golob from Virginia Commonwealth University. The 22-year-old defender is a Slovenian international, so she must already know Kaya Ertsen, who also plays for the Slovenian national team. Finally, on Monday, Napoli announced the signing of veteran goalkeeper Raquel Baldi. She made 123 appearances in Serie B with Siena and Empoli. She spent the last five seasons in Serie A playing for Empoli, Florentia San Gimignano, and most recently Roma. Unfortunately, Baldi tested positive before joining the club, so she is currently in self-isolation. That will do for the news. In part 3, we'll preview our Coppa Italia match on Thursday. Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. In the final part, we'll preview our Coppa Italia match on Thursday against Fiorentina. Because Fiorentina finished outside of the top 8 in Serie A last season, they had to play in the qualifying rounds. 
Their first match was against Cosenza, which they won 4-0. That match was about a week before the start of the Serie A campaign, so Vincenzo Italiano had the luxury of playing his first team squad. It was basically a summer friendly in preparation for the upcoming campaign, but obviously it was a competitive match. Dusan Vlahovic scored a doppietta, while Nico Gonzalez and Lorenzo Venuti scored the other two goals. Italiano used all five of his changes in that match. Around the 70th minute, he replaced Yusef Male with Gaetano Castrovilli, Jose Calejon with Ricardo Saponara, Nico Gonzalez with Ricardo Sotil, and Giacomo Bonaventura with Marco Benassi. Then for the final few minutes, he replaced Eric Pulgar with Alessandro Bianco. So I think that gives you a sense of the depth of this Fiorentina squad. Fiorentina's second round match was against Benevento, which was on December 12th, so the Campionato was well underway at that point. For that reason, Italiano made a number of changes to the squad he fielded in Fiorentina's previous match, which was against Lernitana. Even when the calendar is not busy, we know that Italiano loves to rotate his players, which makes his squads difficult to predict and keeps all of his players well-rested and prepared to play. Against Benevento, he played Antonio Rosati in goal, Igor over Lucas Martinez Quarta at center back, Alexa Terzic over Cristiano Biraghi and Lorenzo Venuti over Alvaro Odriozola at fullback, Sofian Amrabat over Lucas Torreira, Marco Benassi over Giacomo Bonaventura and Yusuf Malay over Alfred Duncan in the midfield, Ricardo Sotil over Nico Gonzalez on the left wing, and Alexander Kokorin over Dusan Vlahovic at striker. In other words, only two players, Milenkovic and Calejon, started in both matches, and they still managed to win that match 2-1 on goals from Sotil and Milenkovic. Like against Cosenza, Italiano made four changes in that match around the 70th minute, except this time it was to bring on his regular starters, and then he made his fifth change late in the match. But the match against Benevento was proof of my previous point, which is that everyone on Italiano's squad is always ready to play. Now, we still have to take that result with a grain of salt. Benevento are a Serie B team, they're competing for promotion, but they're still a Serie B team, and they also rotated heavily for that match. Fiorentina will be playing on slightly shorter rest than Napoli for this match. We played against Sampdoria on Sunday while they played against Torino on Monday. Italiano started his first team in that match and were embarrassed 4-0. That's good and bad. It's good in the sense that he started his first team, which means we're likely to see some rotation from Italiano. But it's bad in the sense that Fiorentina will be motivated by that result. They'll be looking to get some immediate vindication in this match against us. Meanwhile, the top 8 teams from last season got a bye to the round of 16, so this will be our first match in this season's Coppa Italia. If we had a full squad, we would probably rotate heavily as well, but we are still missing quite a few players, so our ability to rotate is limited. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. For Fiorentina, I think we'll see a similar squad to the one they fielded against Benevento. Now, I should note that Fiorentina announced on Wednesday that a player has tested positive, but they have not revealed who that player is. We'll have a better idea when the squads are announced, but obviously that could impact their starting 11. Italiano will line up in a 4-3-3. Pietro Terracciano has been starting lately, but I think we'll see Bartolome Dragovski in goal. He's been out for a while with an injury that he picked up playing against Napoli, actually, but he has since recovered. Lucas Martinez Quarta played only the first half against Torino and his replacement Igor didn't have a great game. His defending was quite poor on Torino's fourth goal. So I was going to say that Martinez Quarta will start at center back but he has been left out of Fiorentina's squad which makes me wonder if he is the player that tested positive for COVID. Meanwhile, Mattia Nastasic has recovered so he will likely start with Nikola Milankovic at center back. I think Alexa Terzic will start at left back and Lorenzo Venuti will start at right back. 
With Sofyan Amrabat at AFCON and Lucas Torreira playing quite a bit lately, I think we'll see Eric Pulgar start as the Regista. If Italiano really wants to rotate, he can start Yusuf Malley and Alfred Duncan as the two attacking midfielders, but I suspect only one of them will start alongside Gaetano Castrovilli, and I'll go with Duncan to get the start. With Ricardo Sotil hurt, I think we'll see Nico Gonzalez start on the left wing, and I think Fiorentina's new signing from Lille, Jonathan Icone, will get his first start over Jose Callejon on the right wing. Finally, even though Fiorentina now have Christoph Piontek, who is in the squad, I think we'll see Dusan Vlahovic start again at striker. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti will line up in the 4-2-3-1 once again. More than likely, Davido Spino will start again in goal. Alex Meret is still positive for COVID, and I can't see Spalletti playing Marfella or Idasiak. I think we'll see Axel Twanzebe get his first start for Napoli at centre-back. The question is, who rests between Juan Jesus and Amir Rachmani? If I had to guess, I'd say Jesus rests simply because he is the older of the two, though I was shocked to learn that he's only 30 years old. I could have sworn he was older than that. With Mario Rui still positive, I suspect we'll see Alessandro Zanoli start at left back. I think it would be irresponsible to start Fauzi Gulam for a third consecutive match, having just come back from his second knee injury. And of course, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, the Ironman, will start at right back. Having recovered from his injury and played 10 minutes against Sampdoria, I think Fabian Ruiz will start in the double pivot alongside one of Stanislav Lobotka and Diego Demme. Since Demme came off slightly earlier in the Sampdoria match, I'll take him to start, but I do expect Lobotka to relieve either Fabian or Demme at some point in the second half. With the Insignia hurt, I think Eli Falmas will start on the left wing and Matteo Politano will start on the right wing. As I said in part 2, Lozano has tested negative for COVID, but I doubt he'll get into the squad, and he definitely won't get into the starting 11. If he does get into the squad, I think he'll be an emergency option on the bench if we need it. If Lozano is somehow fit to start, then I would expect him to start on the left wing so that Almas can play in the number 10 behind Andrea Petania. Otherwise, we'll see the same front two that we saw on Sunday with Mertens in the 10 and Petania up top, and that is what I'm expecting to see. So those are the starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is another obvious one. We need to stop Dusan Vlahovic, assuming he does start this match. Vlahovic is having yet another incredible year. He is currently the Serie A Capocannoniere with 16 goals. His 32 goals in 2021 made him only the third Serie A player in the last 60 years to score 30 plus goals in a single calendar year. I think I've said this before about Vlahovic, but he's the type of striker that can beat you in so many different ways. He's great in the air, he knows where to run off the ball, and he has that natural striker's instinct. It's no surprise that he is one of the most sought-after strikers in the world at the moment, particularly from England. True number nines are in very short supply right now. He's been linked to Juventus as well, but unless Dusan himself really wants to play for Juve like Locatelli did, I just don't see Juve competing with the deep pockets in England. I think Juve are more likely to get Scamacca from Sassuolo. They have a good relationship with Sassuolo, and they could probably swindle another deal like they did for Locatelli. Vlahovic's contract expires in 2023, so if Fiorentina are going to sell him, this summer would be the time to do it. Otherwise, they risk losing one of the most highly rated strikers in the world for free. My second key to the match is we need to run at Fiorentina's defenders, especially their center backs. I rate Milankovic and Martinez Quarta, but many of the goals Fiorentina concede occur when their opponent 
takes them on and makes runs in behind. That's how Lasagna scored against them in their 1-1 draw against Hellas Verona. Against Sassuolo, Fratesi ran at the Fiorentina defense before picking out Scamacca who beat Terracciano. Fratesi scored the second goal by making a direct run into the area and Raspadori slipped the ball through to him. Both of Bologna's goals in their 3-2 loss to Fiorentina were the result of players getting behind the Fiorentina backline as well. So if Mertens and Patania start together, I'd like to see Patania drop and Mertens make the run at the same time. I think Patania can pull those center backs out of position and expose Fiorentina to the ball over the top. We have midfielders and defenders that are capable of playing those balls accurately, especially Fabian and Di Lorenzo. Early in the Sampdoria match, we saw Di Lorenzo play a couple of those curling balls around the back line. So I think that is an approach that will be very effective. Mertens has a great first touch to receive those balls, and we all know about his ability to finish. My final key to the match is we need to defend the cross. That's based on the observation that Fiorentina tend to score most of their goals from the cross. They often score on headers, and they like to play the cross to the near post. So it'll be very important for our fullbacks to win some of those balls in the air in case Fiorentina's forwards get in front of our center backs. I mentioned Vlahovic being good in the air, but they have others as well, especially on corner kicks and set pieces where they can get their center backs forward. Milenkovic is good for 3-5 to five goals a season, so we have to watch out for him on set pieces. It will also be important to win the second ball because Fiorentina have attacking midfielders that can score from the edge of the area. Guys like Bonaventura and Castrovilli can definitely beat you from there. One way of defending the cross is to prevent it from happening. If we close the wings and force them to play on the inside, then I like our chances of stopping them with Deme or Lobotka in front of two of Rachmani, Jesus, and Tuanzebe. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-1 Fiorentina win. I'll give the Fiorentina goals to Vlahovic and Castrovilli, and I'll give the Napoli goal to Elmas. Normally when I predict a Napoli loss, I say I hope I'm wrong, but if I'm being totally honest, I don't think I would be too upset if we lost this match. Now to be clear, I want to win the match, I want to win the cup. Whenever I say something like that, people come at me, but what I'm saying is if we happen to lose despite our best efforts, I won't be that upset. And the reason for that is because we're competing for a top 4 spot, we're competing for the Scudetto, which may be a long shot at the moment, but we're not out of the Scudetto race yet. And we're competing to win the Europa League. For me, all of those things are a higher priority than winning the Coppa Italia, especially with a depleted squad. If you look at where we are in the bracket, we have one of the most difficult routes to the final. If we get past Fiorentina, we'd likely play against Atalanta, who even if they play the reserve team, are a very strong side. And then if we get past Atalanta, we would have to play against either Juventus or Sassuolo, who would not be as difficult of an opponent as Atalanta, but both are good enough teams that you would have to take that match seriously. And if you're taking those matches seriously, which I think we would, we're draining resources. In other words, we're tiring out our players, which could cause us to lose points in Serie A or to be knocked out of the Europa League. What I will say is that I am very encouraged by two things. One is Spalletti's willingness to rotate his squad. He's not starting the same 11 players match in and match out like Sadi used to do. And two, those reserve players are playing really well. Coming into this season, no one had any expectations really for Stanislav Lobotka. Now he's being compared to the likes of Jorginho. No one had any expectations for Juan Jesus. He's starting at center back and we don't feel too nervous about that. We're certainly not leaking goals. Everyone desperately wanted a new left back, but Mario Rui has had an excellent season. And Fauzi Gulam has started to play a few matches as well. 
I don't want to get ahead of myself on Gulam, but we've seen some encouraging signs there, and guys like Kevin Malquian and Andrea Petania have made important contributions here and there. I think we have to give Spalletti most of the credit for those improvements, so hopefully the reserve players step up, but like I said, I won't be too upset with a loss. So that will do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fisket 5 and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'll be back later in the week to review this match and to preview our next Serie A match, which is against Bologna. But until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.